0: It's understandable to want to try bouncing to something new, but if something's working, that's your audience telling you, hey, we like this. We'd like more of that, please. So it's doing a disservice to your audience if you pivot and go off and do something else and don't give them any more of that thing that they like. Now, there's a balance, of course, for the most satisfaction between doing what your audience wants and doing what you want to do because there's a happy
1: medium in there. Welcome to another episode of Hype Fury Presents. In this episode, I talk to Joey, aka the Cypreneur. Joey is a software engineer that started focusing on self-improvement. After reading 30 to 40 books, he decided to teach others about how to improve their lives. He started his daily walks and his psychology fact of the day and is now expanding his coaching business. In this episode, you'll learn how to improve your life as an entrepreneur, how to get better at prioritizing and planning, and you'll also hear interesting ways to grow your audience on Twitter. My name is Yannick, co-founder of Hype Fury, and I hope you enjoy the show. So, Joey, most people know you on Twitter from your daily walks. Tell us a little bit about yourself so we can get to know you.
0: Sure. So it's great to be having this conversation with you today. So I am Joey, also known as the Cypreneur, formerly known as the Improvement Geek. And I am a software engineer turned performance coach for entrepreneurs and executives. So essentially, I've been studying cognitive science for a few years now. I started off reading about that stuff to really help improve myself. As a lot of people know, I've been on a weight loss journey for a while, up and down. And then one day I realized I could use what I learned to help other people improve themselves and lead a better life. And now that I'm an entrepreneur myself, starting a coaching business, I realized that the best people who I could help were people like myself, so I focus on entrepreneurs.
1: And how does a software dev dive into, you know, the brain and the uh, neuromarketing and stuff like that and neuroscience?
0: Coming from software engineering, you know, I had the engineering mindset where I really liked understanding the finer details of how everything worked and connecting the dots as I get through th- something like that. But, like I said, I really started diving into that kind of thing to help me improve myself. But where I actually got my start was just regular self-help books. So the very first one I read, it was just on a whim, was Maximum Achievement by Brian Tracy. That book was amazing. I highly recommend it. But then, as a lot of people do, I got kind of addicted to self-help, and I started reading more and more self-help books. But then I got tired of the cliches and the nonsense and all that stuff. So that's why I started digging into the actual underlying science of self-improvement. After I'd read something like 30 or 40 books, it suddenly hit me, hey, I can help others. And at the time, I didn't have any kind of social media other than my personal stuff. I didn't have a brand or a community or anything. And so I started making YouTube videos under the name Improvement Geek. That didn't work out too well for me because at the time I was an engineer. I was very kind of introverted, reserved, quiet, boring, and so the videos didn't do very well they didn't go very far in january of 2020 of last year i started on twitter and here we are today it's been a very wild journey but it's been a lot of fun
1: while you were still a software engineer did you then transition to your coaching business or are you still a software engineer now getting your side business up as a coach so i'm still doing some software engineering work
0: on the side as a part-time thing partially because i still enjoy it been working with a lot of Amazon Web Services technologies, and I kind of have a thing for that. Yeah, I mean, kind of dialed that back to help grow the business and turn that into my main thing in the next few months.
1: Why did you decide to take the plunge? You know, because a lot of people, you know, they stick to their day job. They normally take years to transition to like a new gig, a new thing, but you're pretty quick about it.
0: Well, something I realized recently. And something I was actually having a conversation about with a client yesterday was in the world of online business, your business can grow very quickly. And the thing is, you have to grow along with it or things are going to fall apart. So I think the statistic by Forbes I read the other day is nine out of 10 businesses fall apart. Obviously, that's not just online business. That includes brick and mortar as well. But a lot of people start their business and it starts picking up steam but then they get burnout or they get overwhelmed or something and everything falls apart so once i got on twitter and once i really found what it was i wanted to focus on then things really started picking up plus grateful for you know referrals and things like that from satisfied clients as well but there was a pe- definitely a period when i got going where It was like, this is happening really fast. And so I had to shuffle around my priorities and everything to make sure that my clients were my number one priority, of course. But I definitely had to shuffle things around to make sure I handled everything without getting burnt out. So that involved dialing back the software engineering work and dialing up my work with my clients, as well as maintaining my social media profiles.
1: You do the daily walks. You've been doing them for, I don't know, 280 plus days, I think now. That's something probably people follow on a daily basis. You know, you got probably a couple of fans and then people just see it, you know, and then not, not follow it daily. But do you see that fan base that watches those videos helps you with your Twitter growth? How did that go?
0: So I really started the Daily Walk series as just something random to do for the month of, I believe it was June of last year. And I started that in the psychology fact of the day at the same time because I was like, eh, I'll do something different every month. It'll be cool. And they both got really good responses, so I decided to make those permanent things. And what I realized was the more that I did the walks, the better I was able to just talk about something at a moment's notice. So I always tell people when they ask about the walks, I don't know what I'm going to talk about when I walk out the door. I really don't know what my topic for the day is going to be until I'm out on the sidewalk outside of my apartment complex. And what that does for me is it gets me out of what I was doing with YouTube, where it was very scripted and very like me squinting at the script in between paragraphs to figure out what I was going to say. And it got me to more of like a conversational setting where I'm able to have a prompt, like a question or something like that, and be able to talk about it without planning. So when I started, it would take me... 10 or 15 tries to record a video for the day and now usually I can do it in one but maybe a loud car passes by or I have a, a brain fart for a moment and need to take two or three but it's definitely helped my ability to communicate more effectively.
1: I think what you mentioned is that you saw those two things they picked up steam and instead of constantly thinking I need to try new things you double down on those. I think a lot of people, they constantly want to try new things and new things, but they don't make the conscious decision of, hey, I'm going to double down on that. Can you, you know, tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, definitely. That's a, a big concept that does relate to online business as well as social media. So when you have something that starts working, it's understandable to want to try bouncing to something new. But if something's working, that's your audience telling you, hey, we like this. We'd like more of that, please. So it's doing a disservice to your audience if you pivot and go off and do something else and don't give them any more of that thing that they like. Now, there's a balance, of course, for the most satisfaction between doing what your audience wants and doing what you want to do because there's a happy medium in there. But like I said, I realized that my audience really liked what I was doing with those. And there have been days where especially the psychology facts have gotten me my most engagement for the day. Because a lot of people like that kind of stuff. So it's definitely been a a journey of listening to the audience and figuring out, okay, what do they want to hear? And how can I blend that with what I want to put out rather than it being all of one way or all or another way?
1: I know what my audience likes. I know what gets me the most engagement and most followers, but I don't always make it a part of my day of my schedule, my Twitter schedule, whatever. So how would other people go about that? How would you help them to do that more?
0: So the big thing is going back over the past, I would say a couple weeks to a month and looking at the patterns. So another thing with me as an engineer is I'm hyper obsessed with patterns from the past or whatever, and just pay attention to the trends. You know, a big one on Twitter right now seems to be the time of day that you post. That's a huge one. But also what kind of topics and how are you phrasing things? So recently I realized that the way that I present some of my content is still a bit too dry. I've always had this pattern of explaining the issue in scientific terms and then giving the solution and then explaining why the solution works. And that's kind of dull and boring. And when I look back over my past month or so of content, I realized that pattern where some stuff was just too lengthy and dry for Twitter and so I pivoted and adjusted and made it more conversational where when I post up something that's a solution, it's more like what I would tell a client in a one-on-one conversation.
1: And so you're now pivoting completely to the coaching of entrepreneurs. What are some of the, like the, the biggest struggles you see with entrepreneurs?
0: The first thing I work on with pretty much everyone is sleep because we're busy entrepreneurs. You know, we're too busy to sleep. But to me, sleep is the absolute core of your schedule. A cheesy metaphor for sleep is, you know, you plug your phone in every night to recharge, but a lot of people aren't plugging themselves in each night to recharge. And so they're going throughout their day on 50% or less. So sleep is definitely the number one thing. And then the second thing is time management and prioritization. So you have a long list of to-dos. That's great. Now we need to prioritize those. And we need to put like block out time on your calendar for those so that you're actually directing yourself. Because if I have a a long list of to do's sitting here in front of me on paper or in my head or in Notion, OK, but I'm going to be very overwhelmed and I'm not going to know where to start. That's kind of a skill, a muscle, if you will, that you start building where over time you get faster and faster at picking out, OK, what's important, what has the highest ROI, what's Going back to the Eisenhower matrix, the four different quadrants of urgent and important. What's the most important things and when can I put them on my schedule? Because science has shown that act of making a plan at a specific time for a specific task is the most powerful thing you can do. And otherwise, if you just kind of go with the flow and do what you feel like, there are few people who that works for perfectly but for the most people they need that direction they need that structure because otherwise if they don't have that direction when they wake up in the morning they're lost and they won't get anything done
1: how can people create the habit of doing that because i know it works for me the same i don't always plan my day or my week i don't always know what my priorities are how can i get in the habit of doing that
0: what i recommend doing is a three-step system and i'll run through it really quickly So the very first step is to do what I call brain dump journaling. Now, brain dumping is you take a blank piece of paper and write down everything on your mind. Absolutely everything should take anywhere from two to 10 minutes. You'll fill up a page, maybe, maybe more. Step two is to go through that and start organizing the stuff and prioritizing it. I organize the stuff on my mind as into business, personal and other. And then I start prioritizing based on what seems to be the most urgent and what's going to bring the highest ROI. Now, if you have trouble prioritizing, as a lot of people do, what you can do is either literally flip a coin or roll a die, like hit up your local D&D player and ask for one of their D20s. Because getting something done is pretty much always better than doing nothing. So if you have to leave it up to chance to prioritize, it's what you got to do. And then the third step is to put it on your calendar. And that can be as simple as You know, I use Google calendar, other people use planners, but just block in 30 minutes or 60 minutes and start getting those priorities into your calendar. That way you have a direction. Because when I start working with clients who feel like they're really busy and they're drowning in a sea of to-dos and they're going nonstop all day long, once we organize their schedule, a lot of them are like, oh man, I didn't know I had this much free time or I didn't know I had this much available time to work on my business. And then they start slotting things in and they start going from maybe one hour of actual productive work a day to four or even six hours of productive work a day. And when you're having like six hours of focused, productive work every single day, you're doing a lot. And that's when your business is really going to be able to take off.
1: And so you also mentioned sleep, which I think is also very important. But what I usually have in the evenings, I'm watching TV or I still want to do something on my laptop or stuff like that. What's something that can help entrepreneurs to, you know, get a decent night's sleep? I was just talking about this to a client yesterday, but, you know, he
0: talked about the example of, man, when I go to bed, like I make time for it. When I go to bed, I just have too much on my mind and I can't sleep. And I said, that's because you don't yet have the systems in place to feel comfortable with what you got accomplished in the day and also go to bed comfortable knowing that you have the systems in place for you to be able to handle your work tomorrow. So the very first thing I would do is what I just talked about with this three-step from your head to your calendar system. Do that first. And then also there's something I call a nightly routine. So a nightly routine, the basis of it is 30 to 60 minutes before you go to bed, turn off all your screens because of the blue light interrupting melatonin and all that good stuff. But while you're in this dark mode, I sometimes call it, what you do is things that don't take a lot of cognitive effort, don't take a lot of thought. So you can do stuff like more brain dumping, meditation, read fiction. You don't want to be reading something like Atomic Habits or Nietzsche or anything like that's really going to get you thinking. You want to read like Ready Player One or something that's easy to read. You can also do things like meal prepping, light light exercise, like yoga or stretching or something. So the point here with the nightly routine is you let yourself start producing that melatonin so you start feeling sleepy and you let your brain kind of wind down so you don't do what most people do where they shut off their laptop and go straight to bed, hopefully brush their teeth. But it when you're do, doing that, you know, your brain needs time to kind of like calm down. It's like when you turn off a truck in the winter, you know, it's still going to be warm for a couple of minutes. You got to, it needs time to cool back down. It's a really bad metaphor. But yeah, those two things go a long way towards helping people go from struggling to sleep to being able to sleep a lot better.
1: I listen to plenty of your daily walks. And one of them, you mentioned that, you know, entrepreneurs have a hard time to delegate things. They want to do things themselves. I also have that. I think a lot of entrepreneurs have that. They probably all know that they should delegate more, but there's something in their head that says, I'm better at this. I need to do this, or this is too important. What kind of things can you tell them that will make it easier for them to let go and to find people to do the work for them?
0: I found that that is largely driven by people want things done right. And there's old saying that if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. But my perspective on it is you need to find the right people. You don't need necessarily have to do it yourself. You need to find the right people to do it right for you. So what I would first do is... And shout out to my friend Shaw for this idea. But what I would do is create what's called a task inventory. And in a task inventory, you write down all of the things that you do on a daily and weekly basis relating to your business. And what you'll find is that there are a lot of things that are boring and almost automated, but they're kind of robotic. But you know, you still have to manually participate in them because Zapier can't do everything yet. But what you can do is you know, put those tasks to the side or like write them down in a different column and then those are things that you could get a VA or some kind of assistant to do for you and honestly the direction that I would go in is I would ask people in your network who have pretty successful businesses and ask them for recommendations about where to find VAs I know different people have different you know regions and sites that they can get hooked up with these people from that's the route that I would go down and just ask other people hey what's working for you instead of Googling and potentially getting burned.
1: I also have that. I don't have a VA yet, but I also struggle with like outsourcing work, I guess. What would be like the first types of tasks you can outsource to get in the flow of that?
0: I would, so I don't yet have a VA either. I think I'm getting close to that point. But one thing that I would think about doing is having somebody who would help organize client documents. Obviously there have to be a non-disclosure agreement there, but help organize client documents manually send them personalized updates via email and things like that. And during my sessions with my clients, I take notes. And then I have to go back later after the call and essentially organize those into something that's readable. And so potentially that's something a VA could do for me as well is do that work, which would save me 30 minutes plus for each client a week, and actually translate that into something readable and then send that to the client. So those are some things. It's going to be different for everybody for each business, but those are areas that I would look at to have a, an assistant.
1: I listened to a podcast from Noah Kagan the other day. I don't know if you know him, the guy from AppSumo. He talks about, you know, also hiring people and then he tells, you know, look at your schedule. What do you spend the most amount of time on, but doesn't bring a, a lot of value to your business? Start outsourcing that first, you know, and then just work your way up, work on like the things that add the most value yourself, but then still try to, you know, get people to, to do that for you once you've you know done it a couple of times and then just outsource it again. So you can just build a big business out of that.
0: People are going to have to get VAs at some point because you can't do everything yourself forever.
1: What are other things you, you talk about in your coaching system? What are things entrepreneurs uh, need help with?
0: So because I have the psychology knowledge, I'm able to help people with any limiting beliefs and I, that they may have because imposter syndrome is incredibly common. So for those who don't know, imposter syndrome is a feeling of essentially not being good enough and not deserving to be where you are. Like me, like I had that really bad last summer when I started getting a following when I hit like 5,000 followers. I started feeling, you know, oh, maybe I don't actually know that much. Maybe I'm not that good. Maybe I I mean, I'm not perfect yet. How can I help other people improve themselves? It also has this fear that eventually you're going to get found out and everything's going to fall apart. You're going to get exposed for being a fraud. So that's a really common one that I give people strategies to work through. And also things like managing when you're really stressed out, managing when you're overwhelmed.
1: What are things you tell them about the imposter syndrome and how to, you know, get over that?
0: So with imposter syndrome, I tell them focus on the good things that you've done already. So like with me, you know, I can focus on the fact that I have over twenty four thousand followers on Twitter. I must be doing hopefully something right. And, you know, people are in my telegram channel, they're engaging in that. People have still opening my emails and my newsletter and all that stuff. So like looking at the achievements that you have, because we as humans are really bad about forgetting the good things that have happened to us and only focusing on the negative things that relates to our negativity bias that we have. That's a survival advantage, but it's not so helpful in these days. Then the other thing is kind of related is to look back on ways that you've helped people or praise that you've gotten from people. So for me, I can look back Anytime I feel, I still feel flashes of imposter syndrome sometimes. I can look back on my client testimonials the messages that they've sent me, the videos and all that stuff and see, hey, I really helped these people. I know what I'm talking about. I have a lot more to learn and a lot more to do. But, you know, there's proof here that I do deserve to be doing this. And the third thing I recommend is this is getting into a bigger topic, but thinking about what thoughts you're having that are actually realistic, you know, just questioning your thoughts and asking yourself, are things really that bad? Am I really that bad? Or am I just overthinking it? You know, do I legitimately know more than other people? So if I create a course or something, is that going to be something that's helpful or, you know, just, just investigating these thoughts? Because the thing is, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of their thoughts are unconscious. You know, a lot of the noise in your brain is not something that you intentionally think. And so you have to start separating the unconscious thoughts from the conscious thoughts and questioning the unconscious stuff and and realizing that a lot of it's not really realistic, it's not accurate. Essentially the brain's trying to protect us. From risking getting embarrassed or losing resources or social standing is the big one. But unfortunately, the way it does that is it tries to drive us from doing stuff like this podcast to not and just sitting on the couch where we can't be hurt. That's really what it boils down to is a self-protective mechanism.
1: I keep reminding people of the saying, there's a lot more fear in imagination than in reality. And that's so very true. Yeah, I see that with a lot of people that, you know, they think of all sorts of stuff that might happen, but it'll probably never happen.
0: It's kind of a platitude, but one of my favorite tweets that I put out sometimes is a fear of failure has killed more dreams than failure ever will.
1: Just get started and uh, it'll, it'll be all right. One of the other things I struggle with, and I think a lot of other people do too, is we spoke about like planning and prioritizing, but how do you prioritize your priorities, as in how do you know what are the most important things to work on? How would you manage that? So that's
0: something that I help people with in a more intensive, deeper manner, because that's obviously very contextual. Going back to when my business started growing, I went from I'm going to read books and read articles and post stuff on Twitter to I have a long list of stuff that I need to do every day and every week. And when you hit that phase where things go from that, you get a lot of things on your plate and you don't really know how to begin prioritizing them. But the thing is, is the skill of doing that relates to your knowledge of the context and the situation and a good knowledge of the potential value that each of these tasks can bring. So it's very contextual and it's something that I work one-on-one with people to help them sort that out and save them time. I haven't really found a good way of a good hard and fast system that works in all situations because it's so reliant on context.
1: While you're building your coaching business, it's actually probably most of your clients are coming from Twitter. Yep. When did you realize that, hey, I can build a business out of this?
0: So my evolution over all of 2020 was pretty interesting. It was always scientific self-improvement based, but you know I experimented with different avenues and different I didn't really know what I was doing for the most part. And in some ways I still don't, still learning, always learning. But I initially thought that one-on-one coaching wouldn't really scale because, you know, time doesn't scale very well. So I focused on creating a course, didn't have enough followers to really monetize a course. I kind of tried, but eh, I didn't want to be a nine left guy. And then late last year, I realized that, you know, personalized coaching would be a good avenue to go down. Because of, well, the personalized aspect of it. I know that I really look up to Jack Butcher and he started this wave of, you know, productization, productizing your service and build once, sell twice and all that good stuff. But I feel like the thing that a lot of courses miss is the personalized aspect to it. Because it's really easy to give someone a foundation of some topic in a course. But once you get past a certain point, then... You know, People have different situations and there's different contexts and people do things at different speeds. And so it doesn't really have that personalized aspect to it. So that's what I really love about coaching is getting to work one-on-one with people and give them personalized help and go at their pace and check in with them every day to see what they may be struggling with at the time. Accountability is a huge part of what I do. But from the business aspect, I had the skills and knowledge, but I really didn't know what I was doing business wise, when I started doing the coaching, what I started doing at the time was helping people for free. You know, I've had a couple of people in group chats that I'm in say they're struggling with stuff I can help with. So I was like, Hey, man, like I'll working on becoming a coach, I'll coach you for free. If you like what I do, like writing me a testimonial will be awesome. And so we did that. And then one of those people wound up referring a paid client to me. And it just kind of snowballed from there. The big thing is, when you start growing something like that is to get testimonials, get that social proof so that people know, Hey, this guy is not just going to take my money and you know, not do anything. The reason why I'm going through all that meandering story is because once I got a little taste of actually working with clients, the free clients, I realized, Hey, this works. This model is, is getting validated. This is something that really helps people. And then I just, quadrupled down on it and made that my absolute main thing because i realized that you know it was having impact on people and also i could charge enough to actually be able to make that a full thing
1: and so the free clients who helped did you discuss with them what they were willing to pay for a service like that you know if they weren't like a free client
0: i didn't at the time i i don't really remember how the pricing came about i think i was basing it on an hourly rate at first because I I think I was, because of the psychology aspect, I was kind of sort of relating it to like a therapist model pricing. And then I have a couple of friends who are fitness coaches in the space. So hearing from them, you know, what they charge and, oh, you're charging for the entire thing up front. And then all these other details, I started kind of formulating what seemed to work for me. And when I first started, I didn't charge a whole lot. And then as the the model and the offer got validated and i got more testimonials and i was able to reduce the time commitment for the client and also raise the price as well well average per session price but i was able to shift that balance to benefit both myself and the client
1: so how do you now look at pricing well can you hey, tell us a little bit about pricing and do you do like packages or per hour how did you go about that
0: so The pricing is now, so that my program's either four or six weeks, and that depends on the pace that the client wants to go. There are people that I've had who prefer going at a slower pace, and that could be just because of the way they learn or because they have a lot of stuff going on. So I kind of feel that out on the call with the the discovery call with the prospect to see which one they'd like. And then that is essentially a package price. So it'd be them investing in the full program up front, essentially, for either choice.
1: I hear a lot of people talk about discovery calls. What do you discuss on a call like that and why do you do it?
0: So with the discovery call, it's really about two things. The first part is about asking questions about the prospect and asking them, you know, what's your current state and where do you want to go? Asking them questions in that regard and getting them talking about the things that are holding them back and the places they want to go to. Those are the the really big things. And then the other half, if, the prospect seems like somebody I want to work with. That's a huge one. And also, somebody that I can actually help. Then, the second half is telling them about my program and the benefits and telling them the price. And if they want to get on with it, then send them the Stripe invoice and set up the onboarding call. So, I know that a lot of people do, they break it into multiple calls. And I think for bigger, like agency style deals, that could work perfectly. But for me, I found, you know, one. Simple, straightforward, usually 30-minute conversation is perfect for what I'm doing. But the way I like to think about that is, like discovery calls, is kind of like from a doctor perspective, where somebody's coming to me and they have these challenges they're facing and they have the state they want to be, that they want to reach, and then I'm kind of diagnosing. So I'm furiously taking notes while the person's talking and thinking about, okay, this is, yep, I've seen this before, you know. And these are things that I can help with. Or I've had a couple of people who came to me for performance coaching and they really just wanted help, like figuring out how to grow their business. And I had to tell them, you know, that's not something that I do, but here are some other people you can follow on Twitter. So really, it's about diagnosing on the discovery call and then offering them your solution and then going from there.
1: You get your clients from Twitter. You've grown, I think, very fast. Like in the last 12 months, you gained over 20,000 followers, I think run us a little bit through how that went you know it was uh, slow at first and then almost all at once but it's probably a cool story
0: yeah so it was man when i started on twitter last year i had no idea what i was doing i'm not really a social media guy like i don't post on my personal social media all that much unless it's pictures of my cat and then you know so like i said i started on twitter in january of last year i converted my old personal account into improvement geek account. I wouldn't recommend doing that, start a fresh account. But I had like 200 something followers. And I remember specifically, I started following Rogue Wealth, Jose Rosado, Life Math Money, and a couple others. And over time, I started networking. I was really cringe when I started too. I took myself way too seriously when I got started. Over time, I learned to kind of relax and be a bit more casual, be a bit more me in my tweets, and my content. And the big thing was really my network. It, that was the most important part. So it took me a little over three months to hit 1,000 followers. Wrote a thread about the anniversary of that a couple of days ago. And then I hit, I think it wasn't until October or September maybe, when I hit 5,000. And then I hit 10K in like mid-November, I believe. And then, like from 10K to 20K, it was just, I blinked and it happened. Like there was a Christmas break and then a couple other things. And then suddenly I was at 20K. I wasn't even prepared enough to really celebrate it because then it just kept going. So the big things there were my network. And by network, I don't mean engagement groups. I mean like people that are actually in my network helping me out. My good friend, JK Molina, he's an incredible ghostwriter. He helped me shape my vision for. What I want to achieve with my Twitter account and how I can communicate my ideas effectively, you know, educate, entertain, inspire, that good stuff. He's been a huge help for me. It's going to sound really cheesy, but the big thing for me is to show up every day. Not a day goes by that I don't get on Twitter. And obviously, you know, I get on Twitter every day and post my walk and my psychology fact, but, you know, keep coming back every day, putting in that consistent effort over the span of a year or more. I had someone messaged me the other day saying it feels like yesterday that you hit a thousand, you know, was it one tweet that got you to 24k? And I was like, no, I've been doing this for 16 months every single day consistently. That's what got me to 24k. I've had some tweets that have gotten lucky and blown up, but like James Clear retweeted me once. Huge fan of James Clear. But while I'm thinking of it to answer your question, another thing that's really helped me not only build my following, but improve my connections, is sharing my story. So I'm sure you've seen the tweets about me having lost 170 pounds. And me sharing that story and about my history, being a World of Warcraft addict and being unofficially homeschooled, that has really resonated with people. Because that shows them, hey, you can be in a down bad in a bad place, and you can, over time, get yourself out of it. And also showing that side of me or that, that history of me has really helped make me stand out as being a little bit more human, I guess, in a sea of stoic avatars. Those kind of things really resonate with people. So obviously you want to keep it somewhat opsec and not tell what street box you live on or you know tell people your address. But you want to show a little bit of actual humanity that really goes a long way. Like I said, the number one thing I learned last year was to stop taking myself so seriously and just relax a little bit.
1: Let's unpack a little bit the growth. When you look at like when you started 200 followers going to 1,000, what were the things you did then?
0: I real quick got Twitter growth guides and I was one of those guys that was addicted to those for a while. So I got Life Math Money. So that was the first, I think the first Gumroad product I ever bought, either that or Jose Rosado's growth guide. Both are excellent and they're both still relevant today. So I do recommend checking those out, not affiliated with them. The big thing at the time was okay, I have a small following. Not that many eyeballs are going to be on my profile tweets. So, what I did was I started responding to others and trying to provide value so that they would hopefully want to talk to me more, but hopefully engage with me. And then, you know, I learned that that increases your impressions. People see, oh, this is this kind of brand account is in here. This looks kind of interesting. You know, they click on your profile and they check you out and see if they're interested in what you're about. So that's really key when you're below a thousand or even 3000 followers, because when you post something, not that many people are going to see it. You know, your impressions, if you have 3000 followers, that doesn't mean you're going to get 3000 impressions on your tweet. It's going to be a small subset of that audience. So a big thing that you need to do is reply to other accounts providing value don't be a reply guy but reply to other accounts with something insightful continuing the conversation and you'll often get retweeted and when you start getting retweeted by big accounts you know retweets are often endorsements then people more people will see you they'll see that you posted something halfway intelligent and then they'll want to check you out and follow you that's really huge when you're a smaller account even when you're a bigger account it helps out a lot but that's so critical when you're smaller
1: and then going from the 1,000 to 5,000 follower count, what were things that you did then?
0: So I got into some Twitter boost groups then. And I think at the time, so that'd be last summer, I think at the time that worked a lot better than it did now. And then, like right around the time of the whole US presidential debates and all that debacle, Twitter like massively changed their algorithm to prevent the spread of misinformation or whatever but that just absolutely destroyed my impressions and a lot of other people's impressions. What we had found at that time was that engaging on the timeline helped recover some of those impressions. So back in the day, last summer, I honestly didn't have to do a whole lot to grow my account other than tweet around 3,000. I could just tweet and get a lot of engagement and I wouldn't have to engage on the timeline much. I'd engage with people who replied to me, but I didn't have to engage on the timeline much. After around August or September, engagement became absolutely critical to getting impressions because like I said, they they lower the organic impressions. They also messed up the retweet button where you were it was by default, quote, RT and that confused a lot of people. And then they also made it more more social, I guess, where if I engage with something you tweet, then you're gonna be more likely to see my tweet on your timeline because it thinks that we're friends or whatever. So that became absolutely critical, and I had to start spending a lot more time on the platform to make sure I was engaging with people, but also engaging with them in a way that still reflected my values and my brand's values, and not just being like rehashing what the person has said. I've heard that the algorithm has changed again lately. I was off Twitter for, well, I wasn't off Twitter all day, but I wasn't as active, so I haven't really noticed it. But apparently it's changed
1: again, so I don't know what the new meta is. I haven't been growing that much this month. I grew a lot last month, not so much this month. And I know that exactly around the presidential elections in the U.S., they changed that RT button. And I think what they tried to do was just you know, try to get people to interact with each other instead of just shouting what they believe or don't <laughs> believe. Did you change anything when you reached your 5K uh, level? One thing that changed was I definitely started feeling more confident.
0: I was starting to build up a pretty solid community, build up a solid network of great people. I really started feeling like, hey, I I have something to offer here. I started carving out a pretty unique niche for myself, and I was getting better at writing content that provided unique value to people. What really changed everything for me was when I hit 10K. That was the biggest moment in my Twitter career that I've had so far because I noticed that when I hit 10K, I stopped caring about the number of followers I had. Like, I, I didn't celebrate 20K because I was like, cool, and then just went on about my day. You know, I, I thought about writing a big thread celebrating it, but I was busy that day, so I didn't. And the reason why is obviously on Twitter, once you hit five digits, then it shows you like 24.4K instead of all the other numbers. For those who don't know who, who want to be neurotic like I used to be, if you're on desktop and you mouse over the number of followers you have, it'll show you the exact number. You don't have to go to social play. I'm glad I didn't know that for the first several months because I might have been. But I didn't feel that urge to check. And that really changed the game for me because I did. I really stopped taking things so seriously because I wasn't checking the number of followers I had every few minutes because I couldn't see, right? Because my way my mind works is I want to know down to the number how many followers I have. I don't care about an estimation. So I felt a massive shift in my mindset when I hit 10K because it's like, okay, I reached that big goal that I wanted to achieve this year. I'm just going to chill and I'm going to be more me. I'm going to try to write more value instead of more, try to write more for education rather than engagement. And that's still something that I'm working on because obviously I want to grow my reach and impact more people. But I also don't want to just be a, a one-liner guy that doesn't provide any value whatsoever. So that's uh, still an ongoing, I would say, internal battle and trying to navigate that and figure out how I want to tweet so I can balance engagement and education.
1: I think that's also a big thing for me. A lot of other people, they see... A lot of platitudes, a lot of tweets where you think, how can this get so much engagement? But you know, those people are usually in engagement groups or retweet each other. What I tend to see is that the bigger the account, the lower value tweets they pump out and still get enough engagement on that. So yeah, I think that's also a really big one for people who are like below 10K or even above that. But just keep punching out value instead of going to platitudes because you know that you'll get the engagement. But in the end, uh, you're not really helping people it's just you know a dime it doesn't really
0: well there's two extremes that i've noticed there's a large account that's grown very rapidly by posting nothing but like fortune cookie platitudes and that gets like he's in retweet groups and everything and that gets a lot of engagement so they're growing very fast but they're known for producing you know low quality content and then there's another account who posts like straight value like every time he posts, he posts like two or three times a day, he posts incredible value and it gets almost no engagement. And the guy's account's pretty small, but he's known for producing a lot of value. So obviously those are two extremes. And I feel like the happy medium, at least for me, as I'm selling a high ticket service with my coaching, I feel like the happy medium for me is kind of a little bit more towards that value account, like left of center or whatever little bit more on that side, but not all the way that side. And I think everybody needs to think about that balance for themselves and figure out what works for them. You know, if you're selling a lower ticket course, maybe you want to be a bit more on the the high engagement and high spread side. But at the end of the day, I mean, we're here, we should be here to provide value to our community one way or another. And so that's why I've moved away from just pure one-liners all the time to providing actual value and, you know, more than one line. The one person I've seen that does one-liners absolutely flawlessly is Jack Butcher. So every time I see a Jack Butcher tweet, I'm just like, wow. And that's because the dude understands his stuff so well that he can condense it down into one tweet or one line. That's the thing. Like he understands his craft and he understands business so incredibly well that he can do that. So for him, it works like he balances it incredibly. And I feel like that's the goal where you understand your material and your craft so well that you can condense things down like that and make people say, whoa, man, that's heavy. But that takes time. And so that takes dedicated time in growing your knowledge and everything. But once you get there, it's a really powerful place to be in.
1: So what do people need to do, Joey, to get retweeted by you?
0: Making me laugh is definitely a good start. That's always a good start. I like pretty, uh, like, surreal abstract memes. We'll put it that way. That's a good first start, but also expanding on something that I said thoughtfully. So, continuing what it was that I was talking about, like, not just agreeing with me, but, you know, adding more to it. Like, I've gotten to the point where I retweet as a curator, you know, like, I retweet thinking I want my audience to see this more than the perspective of, I want this to get more views or something. Sometimes I'll retweet something to help one of my friends out. But usually it's like, oh, this is either really funny or this is really valuable. I'm going to retweet it so that other people can see it. So those are the two big things.
1: All right, Joey, this was a lot of fun. Where
0: can people find you? So my primary place that I pretty much live is twitter.com slash And then I also have a Telegram channel that's like a group chat for those who don't know Telegram but that is channel.cyprunner.com. And yeah, those are the main two places. Thanks, man. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having
1: me. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next show. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave an iTunes review and give us a shout out on Twitter, sharing your favorite part of this episode. See you again next week.